This podcast is brought to you by the American Thoracic Society. We help the world breathe. Welcome to today's podcast. My name is Dr. Greg Tino from the University of Pennsylvania in Philadelphia, and I'm the podcast editor for the Annals of the American Thoracic Society. What we will be discussing today is the problem of diagnostic errors and their impact in the intensive care unit. Our guest today is Dr. Paul Bergel. Dr. Bergel is a critical care physician and an assistant professor in the Division of Pulmonary Critical Care and Sleep Medicine at the Medical College of Wisconsin. He is an active member of the Society to Improve Diagnosis in Medicine and, in fact, just completed a year-long research fellowship in diagnostic error through that society. More recently, he co-authored a manuscript entitled Diagnostic Error in the Critically Ill, Defining the Problem and Exploring Next Steps to Advance ICU Safety. Welcome, and thanks for joining the podcast today, Dr. Bergel. Thank you so much, Greg. Happy to be here. So I really was uh, intrigued by um, some of the information that you provided in the paper, and then importantly, some of, the, some of your approaches to how we would deal with and, and overcome the problem of diagnostic errors. So I thought we would start with with the big picture. And as you noted in your paper, uh, there's been a focus on reducing diagnostic errors in medicine in general. Uh, and this was formally addressed in the 2015 National Academy of Sciences Engineering and Medicine Report entitled Improving Diagnosis in Healthcare. It was a detailed report, but maybe we can start by your highlighting the main take-home points of the National Academy Report for our clinicians. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, so I'm a little late to this game. Um, you know, I, I, there have been a lot of experts that have been working on these issues for decades, but this NAS report in 2015 really uh, came about at a perfect time. And I think the, the main take-home points for clinicians are, first, they've, they've moved toward a really patient-centered approach to not only the diagnostic process, but how we would define a diagnostic error. Um, they, there have been disparate definitions of diagnostic error over the years, but the, the NAS report really sort of centered around making a timely diagnosis, and effectively communicating that to the patient or caregivers. So that patient-centeredness was, I think, uh, probably the biggest take-home message. Similarly, they tried to really put together a universal framework for the diagnostic process. Um, and at the center of that process, again, is the patient. So, I, I, you know, patient-centered care has become sort of something we all worry more about. Uh, and I thought this was really uh, a critical way of addressing the issue and, and, you know, framing the issue. So how did you get interested in the topic in general? You know, honestly, I, I think I'm a little bit of a romantic for <laughs> how I think medicine should be practiced or used to be practiced. So when I was going through training, I was always a little bit miffed by um, our approach that had become really about technology and labs, and we lost sight of taking a history and, and doing a good physical exam. So as a resident, I started to notice cases where uh, physical exam in particular had been neglected. So that's kind of the route I came to this was initially thinking about why aren't physicians doing an appropriate physical exam or why are they missing sentinel findings? And as both someone who's been interested in medical education and teaching clinical reasoning, as well as thinking a lot about safety and uh, how we design systems for safer care, it became a natural way uh, for me to sort of bring all of my interests together. So it was really just those patient stories, though, of, of really bad misdiagnoses that you know, pulled at my heartstrings and said, there's something here that we really need to be looking at. It's very refreshing to hear a young faculty member really coming back to 
some of the tenets of our diagnostic approaches, that is the physical exam and, and the history, such an important part of what we do still to this day, obviously. So, so Paul, what is a diagnostic error? How do you actually define what a diagnostic error is? Yeah, great question. And I think there's been a lot of debate over the years. Again, the National Academy report basically said it's failure to uh, make a timely diagnosis and or communicate that to the patient. Uh, there have been a lot of other approaches that have been discussed. The traditional paradigm, I think, was a diagnosis that was missed, a misdiagnosis, or a very delayed diagnosis. One of, uh, the, one of my co-authors in this paper, uh, Hardeep Singh, has proposed this idea of a missed opportunity, which I really gravitate to. The idea being that, um, you know, not all diagnostic errors are preventable. Some diagnoses we just don't know how to make. It's a new disease. It's uh, very undifferentiated when we're first approached with a problem. But really focusing on the, the diagnostic errors that had opportunities to either gather history that was missed, to interpret a lab value in a different way, to communicate with a family member. Uh, so I like this missed opportunity approach, and I, th I think it's becoming one of the more popular ways of defining a diagnostic error. And so follow-up to that, um, then how do you reliably, either in an academic fashion or, a, or in a, you know, in a, on a practical level, how do you reliably identify a diagnostic error? You, you talked a little bit about autopsy being sort of the, if, if you will, a gold standard in, in ICU patients. So, so what are the, what other things are there, and is autopsy a good way to, to to identify, in retrospect, a diagnostic error? So, I think the problem has been first that there have been so many de different definitions for diagnostic error. But if we sort of center around the ideas of missed, delayed diagnosis, missed opportunities, I still think that an autopsy is probably the the best confirmatory test we have for a final, true, adjudicated diagnosis. In other situations, when we're doing this retrospectively, I think we're relying on um, sort of a change in diagnosis over time or a, a constellation of clinical findings in laboratory and other you know, imaging data to adjudicate a diagnosis. People have tried to do this prospectively, which I think is a little bit more difficult. First, you need to get inside the clinician's mind um, and then sort of track how that diagnostic process evolves uh, throughout either their shift or throughout a patient's hospital stay or through longitudinal care. And then finally, people have tried to take a more of a big data approach and looked at the return to emergency room visits or changes in diagnostic coding for a patient within a, in a brief period of time. So there are certainly lots of ways to identify this. Uh, but I think relevant to critical care, probably the autopsy still is the best way to at least identify fatal diagnostic errors. Okay, fair enough. So how does one distinguish, uh, Paul, between the natural history of a critical illness versus a true misdiagnosis? You know, the retrospectively, I think that's extremely difficult. You know, I've done some of this research now and do, doing chart review, really all that's in the chart is all that there is to go on. So it is uh, you know, very difficult to say was there a significant delay, what was going on in this certain period of time. Right. Um, so, you know, and obviously we recognize patients with a lot of these syndromes, whether it's in an ICU or anywhere else, sometimes they come in pretty undifferentiated. So that, that is a that is a outstanding question that I don't have a, a firm answer to. I think prospectively it would be easier because you'd say, well, there was a failure to consider this diagnosis. Uh, so it wasn't just the natural history, but the thought, this thought wasn't even on the clinician's mind. Retrospectively, it's a lot harder to parse that out. Yeah, and that's that's my take on not only what what you've published but other things I've seen in the literature. You know, and one of the things as a clinical person, 
you know, we're confronted with a complicated patient, and we come up with our differential, and oftentimes we'll make a plausible diagnosis, and we find out later on that there was a different diagnosis. So is that a misdiagnosis? I mean, how do, again, how do you distinguish a plausible alternate diagnosis, which would be reasonable under the data you're giving, and then find out later that it was not the right diagnosis? Is that a misdiagnosis, or is that part of the business of medicine in 2018? That Yeah, this is, again, this is a question that people smarter than I continue to struggle with. I, yeah, there certainly has to be some uh, degree of errors that we're just not going to be able to eliminate completely. Medicine is still an art. Patients come in with nonspecific symptoms, and often it's very difficult. I think um, the probably the missed opportunities are when clinicians have failed to consider a diagnosis in the first place. So, again, you and I both practice in the ICU where you know, patients could have many things that are a possible explanation or perhaps all those things at the same time are the explanation. So I think the the things that we're looking to reduce are the missed opportunities where physicians didn't even consider it or got so set down one path and committed, you know, put all of their eggs in that basket to the expense of not keeping an open mind and not addressing other plausible diagnostic possibilities in, in the interim. So uh, I think those are the I don't want to say low-hanging fruit, but those are the, the situations that probably still have solutions. And there's, there are going to be times, though, that we do our best and, you know, people are still not going to get a timely diagnosis. So there probably has to be some acceptable error rate. Uh, but I think, you know, the current estimates of 10 to 20% tell me that there's still room for improvement. Absolutely. So, uh, so as a good segue, so how big is the problem of diagnostic error in the ICU and what have you learned about the impact on our patients? Just give me some numbers. So, yeah, absolutely. I mean, so across, you know, across practice settings, uh, 5 to 20% are the estimates that are given. There have been a lot of autopsy studies in the ICU. Again, you know, I don't, these are not all fatal uh, uh, diagnostic errors. Clearly, some people uh, die from another reason, but have another major diagnosis that is identified post-mortem. So there's this Goldman classification for uh, autopsies. So we're talking about class one, class two, which are either major misdiagnoses that contributed to uh, death or major misdiagnoses that would have been relevant to patient care. And if you look at the autopsy series, you know, over the last 30, 40 years, it's been in that range. It's been 20, 25% uh, for class one and class two errors combined. So it's a pretty prevalent problem. That's really what we have, though, to go on in the ICU. There have been really a couple small studies as part of you know, uh, people that have looked at it as part of a larger safety study that have tried to look at diagnostic errors outside of autopsies, and we just don't have good data to tell us how often it occurs or how often maybe people are recognizing it and sort of averting death or averting crisis, but still could have had things go better. So the scope of the problem, I think, has to be bigger than that. Yeah, and, you know, I was fascinated in some of the some of the studies you quoted uh, that, one study estimated that one in 16 ICU deaths were due to lethal misdiagnoses and that, um, and that even before the ICU, that, that diagnostic errors accounted for anywhere from 9 to 12% of safety events that led to the ICU uh, transfer uh, in the first place, and most of these were, were actually thought to be preventable. So that was, that was again, in your, in your paper, and I thought that was, uh, that was very interesting and certainly a bigger problem than I would have thought uh, before, I, uh, before I looked at your paper. So are there any differences, as far as you know, between types of ICU, medical versus surgical, an open unit versus a closed unit, which is the kind of unit I practice in and I know you do, sure. community versus academic center? Uh, are, there, are there any data on that, Paul? 
Yeah, there are. I mean, I'd, I'd have to delve into all the autopsy studies a little bit better, but um, there's a really nice meta-analysis from 2012 by Winters et al. that I quote, and they, they looked at the, you know, the different populations, and a lot of these were mixed. They were mixed medical, surgical. Um, more often than not, they're coming from university or academic-type centers, although I have to say one of the best studies I saw recently uh, about this came from a non-academic hospital in Florida that looked at autopsies. And again, you know, same, same sort of rates of Goldman class one and class two errors. So the, the data we have are probably very representative of not just medical ICU populations, but the general ICU population, perhaps are a little bit biased toward uh, teaching type centers. But the data we have from the non-teaching centers in the ICU and beyond, again, suggests that this is, this is widespread everywhere. Interesting. So what are the most commonly misdiagnoses? What, what keeps coming out in terms of the things that we are missing most in the ICU, Paul? Well, it may surprise you or it may not. It's actually a common thing. So I, I joke on rounds a lot that pulmonary embolism remains one of the most overdiagnosed and also one of the most underdiagnosed problems in medicine today. So it's simple stuff. It's, it's sepsis. It's the wrong infection. You know, common thing, a fairly common thing is, you know, missed fungal infection. You know, patients being treated with antibiotics that succumb to that. Vascular complications, so missed strokes, missed dissections, missed abdominal perforations. Um, so these are the common things in the ICU populations. We, you know, we did a, a study here, and it, we found the same thing. Really, the most common stuff we saw was sepsis uh, with the, the source was missed, or you know something was mislabeled and uh, as sepsis and wasn't sepsis. There's still a lot of you know work to be done around that. And then you have the, the vascular complications, pulmonary embolism, aortic in, you know dissections. Um, bleeds, you know, internal bleeds, things like that. So yeah, so it's not the it's not the zebras, right? It's it's, it's not really exotic. The, yeah, it's, it's not leukocytomas or porphyrias or things. It's it's the run of the mill <laughs> stuff we think about every single day. Uh, just you know, it's false uh, And it's humbling. It's humbling that, that you know the, that that common stuff is is really difficult sometimes to sort out in the ICU. Uh, so, Paul, you and your co-authors noted that, that, that really there are a couple of reasons um, uh, why diagnostic errors happen. And they re in general, they result, as you said, from cognitive failures as well as system-based failures or some combination of both. So give us some examples of, of both cognitive failures or what you would characterize as a cognitive failure and then, and then tell us a little bit about system-based failures that you found in your work. Sure. I think the cognitive failures are the things that are going to come to mind for most clinicians first. It's failure to have elicited a key piece of history. It's not getting the right laboratory test or misinterpreting the laboratory value in the context. It's missing a critical physical exam finding. It's, you know, uh, not thinking of the diagnosis in the first place and not even having tested for it. So those are common examples of cognitive failures. The systems-based failures are more, I think of them more as information flow uh, issues in general. So, you know, somebody gets transferred from another hospital and the data that's supposed to come with them doesn't come with, or a patient is aphasic and their caregiver who can provide all the history is not able to give you that in a timely manner. But if there's other systems issues as well, right? So the, you know, lab specimens got switched and you got, a, or you got an erroneous lab value that you put a ton of stock in, started transfusing someone for a hemoglobin that was reported at five and that really wasn't the issue all along. So. Uh, you know, in general, cognitive failures are thought to, to be a little bit more common, but I, I think the reality is that there are often a combination of both that are really uh, contributing to the major diagnostic failures. Okay. Um, one of the things you talked about um, 
is the about the issue of potential bias associated with diagnostic momentum in the ICU. That is, patients are transferred to the ICU. Many of them have already been seen by other clinicians, and working diagnoses are already in place. So how much does that impact or bias the receiving, the critical care physician who or provider who's now um, taking over the care? <laughs> the most challenging things about biases are that, a, they're very difficult for us to recognize, and uh, B, they're, they're really difficult to to get around. Um, you know, so I think, I, but I do think these biases really do play a role in in the care we provide in the ICU. There is definitely this notion of diagnostic momentum or the related concept of availability bias. That if some, somebody suggests something to you or says this is it, that it's really going to be difficult, even if you're actively thinking of other diagnostic possibilities, to get that out of your mind. Uh, so there is definitely, that will definitely play a role in, in uh, the diagnostic process in the ICU. Um, I think there are other few other aspects, though, about that diagnostic momentum as patients come to the ICU that uh, make our jobs even perhaps a little more challenging than other, other settings. The first is that these patients are often coming with just volumes of data. So, you know, clinicians outside of the ICU, whether in an emergency ward or on the floor or perhaps in the PACU or something, are sort of operating as the first diagnostician and able to go through their traditional approach a little bit more uh, linearly or in a way that suits their mind. When patients come into the ICU, there's a lot of data that's already been generated, and it's sort of hard to take a step back and uh, ignore that data, but then you also don't have access to the primary data, where, you know, the person that gave the history in the first place, now they're deteriorated and they're not able to tell you what exactly went on. And then I think the final challenge of all of this is that Patients have not only been subjected to a diagnostic process, but some degree of therapeutics before the ICU as well. So then we're also left with the task of uh, trying to sort through, is the diagnosis correct, but is some of this just iatrogenesis? So I think there are a lot of biases that are introduced by the care that patients receive coming to the ICU. And I guess the only solution now is really just to, to be aware of it and, you know, uh, recognize that the labels that are stuck to people in particular can be very influential in, in trying to you know, think beyond those when you're, you're meeting someone for the first time. So I think you already answered this or you already mentioned this, but I'm going to ask it again. I remember sure. there was a saying one of my residents taught me when I was a resident that the retrospectoscope is always 2020 is what he said. Um, so is missing a diagnosis always or almost always preventable? So I don't know that it's always preventable. And to be honest, I, uh, I've come up with my own saying, which I don't think I'm the only one who's thought of this, but I, I think hindsight is often actually 50-50. You know, if unless you're in that moment it's, uh, and you're able to put yourself back in that moment, it's really difficult to understand what was going through someone's mind or would somebody have really done anything differently. Um, so I, I think what we're looking for are what one of uh, my hospitalist colleagues up in Minnesota calls undesirable diagnostic events. So sort of not just thinking about diagnostic errors, but looking at things in which uh, you know, things are sufficiently common that have good reference standards, have a pretty standard approach to diagnosing them, and that if diagnosed timely can certainly re uh, result in better outcomes. Um, so when, when, you know, we looked at charts here at, at, in, at our institution, we sort of use that type of mentality, which tends to underestimate probably the true rate of error. But, you know, I think we need to start with the glaring stuff and say, okay, you know, this patient was billed as having sepsis and had abdominal tenderness, and there was freer that was reported on the radiograph that the team missed. I mean, clearly this is a missed opportunity. The person had a, a perforation. Right. It shouldn't have taken 72 hours for the team to discover that. So that, that's, that's like one example of the type of stuff that I think we can really hone in on and say that, that type of thing is probably preventable in some way. 
getting back to what you talked about with, you know, natural history and progression of illness. I mean, you know, somebody dies and something could have been done a little bit differently. Uh, that's a little bit harder to, to say that was preventable. Thank you. So now that we've sort of framed the problem, uh, Paul, mm-hmm. I thought we would move into some very important aspects of your paper where you advocated for a very interesting ICU-centric approach approach to diagnostic error. So, A, what is your approach in general? I think you've touched on the issues of missed opportunity and preventable harm, but I'd like you to expand on that a little bit. And then really get into what the main elements of your proposal were, because uh, I found those very interesting and I think uh, a really good way to, to think about how to reduce these diagnostic errors in the ICU. So what's your approach and what are the main elements? And I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to let you answer. Sure. I mean, I, I hate to repeat myself, but I, I like this idea of missed opportunities. I think, again, we look at, we're looking at preventable things. I like this framework of an undi- undesirable diagnostic event, something that is common enough as a standard approach to identifying it. If we recognize it early, patients clearly do better. And I think there are a lot of ICU syndromes and diseases that, you know, match that description. Um, I think, though, you know, uh, so the things that I've, uh, I think are supported by the literature and uh, could potentially help the diagnostic process in the ICU include some sort of enhanced way to identify errors. So people have looked at, are there electronic triggers or things in the EHR that we could say something might have been uh, amiss here? An admitting diagnosis changes to something different and discharge from the ICU. A patient is given, you know, a series of treatments and then is given contradictory treatments 12 hours later. So that would be one way to start to recognize more of these and try to learn from them. I think that peer review, not just through M&M, is important, but I would like to see routine auditing of even the routine stuff. Uh, There are likely times that we are not having an ideal approach to uh, the evaluation of our patients and and making smaller errors that we can still learn from. So I think routine peer review uh, would be really important. I personally think teamwork is, is critical and you know, you and I are both in academic centers where we have teaching teams and perhaps a lot more people on the team, but every ICU is, you know, should be working with a multidisciplinary team, and all those members have something to contribute, uh, including diagnostic information and even diagnostic hypotheses, and it is clear from the literature that the more people are thinking about a problem, the more likely they are to get it right. So I think teamwork and communication amongst the team um, are also critical. And and the other thing you talked about was, again, regular quality reporting. Mm-hmm. Um, Reviews of cases, which again I think um, um, you know happen to some degree in many places, but probably not to the uh, not to the extent that that this kind of a problem um, it sounds like uh, would be warranted. Um, and the other thing you talked about was was patient centeredness, which is what you started our discussion about. Um, sure. The communication piece is is really I think very very critical. I think you know when we round as teams, it happens you know in, very commonly where um, you know. We don't necessarily always reach out to the our specialists and our other colleagues. And I think mm-hmm. having, you know, not for every patient, you can't do it for every patient, but certainly in more complicated patients where there is some question about what's going on, I've found in my in my time that, you know, inviting those folks to rounds or to a meeting, you know, to a sort of a discussion after rounds mm-hmm. has been invaluable. And on in a number of occasions it's completely, once we get everybody in a room um, and we get on the same page, we we I've seen you know the diagnostic approach completely change and and really to the patient's betterment. So has that been your has that been your um, experience? And do you uh, do you incorporate other teams on your rounds on a regular basis? 
I try to, you know, uh, and that has been my experience. I haven't been doing this all that long, but, um, you know, I I still try to walk down to radiology if I really feel like I have a question and, and tap right into the, you know, the the brains of the people that are actually reading the scans or whatever that is. Um, I think we're sort of uh, fortunate. I'm in a closed ICU, so teams know where to find me. Uh, you know, we, we have a lot of shared populations, whether that's transplant or hematology, oncology. So we are often benefiting from people that have continuity with these patients or are seeing them on a daily basis just to you know, sort of help with the diagnostic process. Um, and, you know, I completely agree. I, don't, I, I think, the, again, the literature really supports the more brains you put together on a, on a complicated case and the more that there's free flowing of information and free exchange of information, the more likely it is that you're going to get things right. Yeah, I, I I think that's an excellent point. Um, so, Paul, what is what have you learned about um, and what's been published potentially in the literature about the impact of diagnostic errors on on the clinician, on the physician? You you mentioned a little bit about something you call the second victim effect in your paper. Can, what have you learned about about the actual impact um, on us when a diagnostic error is identified that has potentially harmed a patient? Yeah, I mean, so there's really not a lot of literature out there specific to diagnostic error. The second victim effect comes from the larger safety research, which basically, you know, people that uh, were part of a medical error uh, carry that with them for some time. And, you know, there are symptoms as, you know, severe as severe depression, um, but even just sort of second-guessing yourself, changing the way you do things that would have probably been right before, uh, yep. You know, these are some of the, the signs of the second victim effect, and I think that that is fairly clear from the cognitive psychology literature, as I understand it, that when you do make diagnostic errors, you actually tend to uh, change the way you practice, and that may not always be the, the right adaptation. It might be actually uh, counterproductive. You might have been doing it right all along, and now you're being overly cautious, or you're changing the way you're viewing problems uh, when you shouldn't have. So it's it's on a personal level it's on a you know a professional level that you you feel guilty but then also probably affects your medical decision making uh, pretty substantially yep yep so you know one of the things um that we face every day as critical care physicians is that the just the incredible amounts of data laboratory data diagnostic studies mm-hmm. logic information and I have a provocative question for you. Do we need a different rounding model in the ICUs or novel ways to review the mountains of data we have to process every day as critical care practitioners? It would probably be uh, pretty presumptuous if I said my way of doing it is great. Uh, but I'll tell you what I've, I've tried to do. Tell me tell me you what know, you I, do. I, again, I'm a little bit of a romantic, and when we round on patients uh, as the teaching team, I, we just dive in the room, and I say, let's just look at this patient and start from square one. Let's, you know, see what we can observe in the room here. You can tell me the story. We can review some data in, in the background. But I've I've gone back to the bedside, and I think, yes, there's plenty of data, and I'm, I will spend plenty of time on rounds afterwards uh, reviewing that. But I think the fundamental uh, your diagnostic approach really begins with history and physical and we don't always have a history, but there's certainly a lot to be gleaned about, you know, carefully examining patients or just standing in the room, seeing what they're doing on the ventilator, seeing how well perfused they are. And then that data is a lot easier to integrate and interpret, I think. I mean, that's my personal opinion. I'm, I know I still make plenty of diagnostic errors, and I'm, I'm still learning from them. 
But I think that is one potential solution to the mountains of data we have is to just flip the script. You know, start with the basics. Don't bias yourself with too much information up front. Um, let the team think aloud. Let the team work together, and then view the data in light of all of that. I don't know. I, that may not be the right solution, but that's that's the approach I've decided to take. Well, that's I, that's music to my ears because I think uh, <laughs> I think I think uh, getting back to the basics, and then obviously uh, um, looking at obviously the advantage we have with all our diagnostic capabilities. But I think a combination of you know basic tenets of medical care supplemented by all the technology, I think uh, I think gives us really a running start. Um, so, Paul, in many ways, your and your colleague's paper is really a quote-unquote call to action about diagnostic errors in critical care. So what are you doing? What are, what are your next steps? You know, where are you taking this from a research standpoint? Where are sure. you taking some of your ideas uh, and implementing them at your institution? So we've started really with just examining the epidemiology. I think, as I said, a lot of the literature has been around autopsies. Uh, so I am in the process of writing up uh, a study we did here. We, we retrospectively looked at uh, you know, somewhere between 250 and 270, I don't know, 250 something charts looking for diagnostic errors on the presumption that ICU transfer itself or ICU emission was potentially a sign of diagnostic error. Um, that was for not only for epidemiologic purposes, but to sort of understand the scope of the problem in non fatal diagnostic errors. And I think that's that's still a first step. I mean, I think a lot of it's raising awareness. You know, I, I'm fortunate to work at a hospital that is ranked very highly with respect to quality and safety. Um, but this is on people's radars because it's hard to measure, it's hard to, to track. Things like quaddies and clabsies are a lot easier for people to point at and say, hey, we're doing really well here. Um, so I think the, the things I'm still trying to do are raise awareness, get a little bit better sense of what is the scope of the problem. We looked at, we tried to look at risk factors. So are there certain types of ICU patients that we should be uh, particularly uh, on alert for? And without spoiling my uh, my data too much, I'll tell you that the big things were Q-SOFA scores, <laughs> you know, sort of basic things. The more unstable they looked, the more likely they were to have had a diagnostic error. And, uh, you know, female uh, gender, so women. Uh, and this actually echoes some of the things we know about other uh, places, but women uh, were more commonly uh, implicated in these cases. So Interesting. that's where I'm starting, I think. Uh, and we can talk a little bit more about that if you want, but I, I'm sort of thinking ahead. I'd like to do some sort of prospective work. I'd like to do some of this rapid turnaround feedback to people, you know, based on what we've looked at, try to do chart reviews in, in closer to real, in real time or to do them prospectively and give uh, clinicians feedback. And then, you know, the other thing I've thought about is how can we increase autopsy rates? Because in the ICU, I really think that's one of the best ways we have to learn from our mistakes. You know, four to five, uh, four to five times when a, a person declines an autopsy or a family declines it, it's just for, you know, uh, they, they, just, they just family preference, basically. And I don't think people are getting well-informed. So maybe if we prospectively ask people if, if you were to die in the ICU, can we get an autopsy? I don't know what the solution is to that, but I think boosting autopsy rates would be sort of my last uh, personal mission. Got it. Any last thoughts or comments or any other things you want to mention, Paul, about elements of your of your paper or in the work that you're going to do uh, moving forward? I don't think so. I guess I just, again, emphasize that I, I really like the patient-centered approach uh, that a lot of people in this field are taking. I really think teamwork is critical. The idea that a single physician goes through the process of gathering a history, doing the exam, ordering a laboratory test, 
particularly in the ICU, is, is antiquated. I mean, this is, this is definitely a team sport. Uh, every opinion needs to be valued, including the perspective of patients and their family members. Um, and again, I think it's, we're never going to be perfect. Uh, we're not going to get all diagnostic errors eliminated, but at least the more transparent we can be in our thought processes and the better we can communicate that to uh, patients and families, communicate our uncertainty, I, I think that still is going to uh, result in, in better care in the long run. Well said, Paul. Very well said. And again, thank you so much for making the time to uh, to be with us today. Uh, again, I'd like to thank Dr. Burgle for participating in the podcast, and I hope uh, and I hope that you've enjoyed this podcast and found the discussion on diagnostic errors in the critically ill population as thought provoking and as compelling uh, as I have. Until next time, this is Dr. Greg Tino, podcast editor for the Annals of the ATS. Thank you very much for joining in. <laughs>